0: Sometimes I think that this is probably the only topic that human beings are qualified to speak on, <laughs> myself at least. Anyhow. But there's something good about it. I call it the convincing evidence, because we are in a, we're in a war. We're in a war of ideas. Actually, you know, in Revelation where it says there was war in heaven, the word is, I'll probably mispronounce it, it's its the root word we get our word polemic from. It's an argument. It's, a, it's not a fisticuffs type of a thing. We're in a war of ideas. And we need some evidence. Well, <clears throat> I'm going to jump in with some lessons from history and um, some of this... I'm just going to have to count on a a, a little quick adaptation or a little quick adjustment so that you can all kind of get up to speed on it here, so to speak. We're going to start off talking about Dr. Kellogg. This is Adventist history. If you're not a Seventh-day Adventist, well, welcome to the family gathering. And we're just going to talk about our past for just a moment. From about 1888, well, earlier in some ways, but from 1888 to 1895, Dr. Kellogg was a tremendously good influence, mostly, in Seventh-day Adventism. About 1895, he took uh, offense because he was not being treated well by some individuals, and his heart became, um, over some period of years, more self-centered, shall we say, kind of annoyed with others, touchy. Ellen White says he put on the coat of irritation. I'm not quite sure what that means, but you kind of get the drift anyhow. Um, Unfortunately, over time, his influence went downhill significantly. And um, he began to work for, I would say, his own honor and glory, he uh, decided he was going to outperform everybody else in the church, and in many ways he did. He was a remarkable guy, but he was not always God-like or Christ-like. There were ups and downs during this time period, but the trend was for the worse. Eventually, Ellen White would be required to write things like this. "...a scene is presented before me, what has been presented before me, of actions performed by you, Dr. Kellogg, similar to the actions of Satan in the heavenly courts. From time to time I have given warnings to different ones who are being blinded by your sophistries and misrepresentations. Your power of misrepresentation is so continuously exerted that many have been deceived." In some things you act like a man bereft of his reason. It is a marvel to me how one who has had the light in so many ways, who has received so many warnings and reproofs, can yet go on blindfolding himself and others. That's not a very good status to be in. Another similar statement. You have been the spokesman repeating the words of accusation and condemnation of the arch deceiver. Your science has been used to benumb the sensibilities and confuse the judgment of others. In long night talks, you have presented your mind and plans and works, and these have become their mind and plans and works. In listening to your words, these men have imbibed the very science of the tempter. You have twisted And manipulated and misstated and misrepresented the testimonies that God has given, making them of no effect. Ellen White was certainly the primary individual taking the lead in opposing the work that Dr. Kellogg was doing. Since her writings are often called the testimonies, that's what she's saying. He he was undercutting her influence and her statements. Comment goes on. This whole matter has been presented to me. You have worked as Lucifer worked in the heavenly courts to persuade his associates to unite with him. The enemy has used his arts upon your mind. Your boasted study of science and your assertion that you have obtained something excellent have deceived the men connected with you, and they have refused to listen to the warnings sent to keep them from listening to your false representations. Okay, well, it's kind of a gloomy situation, a gloomy assessment of Kellogg's involvement. We have just one more statement like this. The ministers of God are being drawn in and deceived by his science. He is doing all in his power to create a division between the medical work and the ministry of the word. It's interesting. He was pulling ministers... The ministers of God. He was pulling ministers onto the, the, if you want to, you know, I mean, he's he's making a division. The medical here, the ministry there. And he's managing to pull some ministers onto the medical side. Well, okay. This last point here is particularly important. And in... um, other settings and other presentations, I spend a lot of time on this aspect, but this idea of of creating that division is particularly important because of this statement. When the gospel ministers and the medical missionary workers are not united, there is placed on our churches the worst evil that can be placed there. I, I think that's literally true. And I would say that largely happened over 100 years ago. And I would say we have largely been laboring under that condition of the worst evil upon our churches for the last century. It doesn't mean that good things haven't been done. It doesn't mean that you know, souls haven't been saved. It just means we've been dealing with some real challenges. I don't have time to go into that. That's in a whole different series, and I'm not going to spend time on that right now. So, <laughs> but um, that's an important point. God wanted a union between the evangelistic work, the, the the ministerial work, and the medical work. There was this this grand plan for this perfect union in this these branches of work, and Kellogg was trying to split them into two. Well. I've dabbled in Adventist history for some while, and so I was familiar with these statements, and I never really tracked them out. And I thought, you know, uh, some while ago, I said, you know, I, I really had to, had to try and find out what was going on. What was, what was Kellogg actually doing? I mean, because there's these, these are rather profound charges. I mean, you're, you're working as Satan worked in heaven. I mean, that's, that's not just your average run-of-the-mill near-do well. You know, okay. This is somebody who's really got something going on, and it's going downhill. So, so what was he actually doing? And so I, I kind of went looking for that in a variety of sources. And that's more or less where we want to go right now. Um, in order to understand the setting, we go to a well-known verse. Revelation 12. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. We normally interpret that to be a third of the angels. The dragon is Satan, Lucifer. And he deceived a third of the angels. Round figures, at least, something like that. And war broke out in heaven. That's the polemicos. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And if I was going to take Ellen White's comments seriously, there's something in all of this that somehow Kellogg had managed to learn how to do. So I went looking, in the spirit of prophecy, primarily, and Bible. I went looking, you know, what, what are we told about Lucifer? What are we told as to what he did? I'm going to go quickly through a number of quick uh, slides here. Lucifer gained the sympathy of some of his associates by suggesting thoughts of criticism regarding the government of God. The evil seed was scattered in a most seducing manner. And I would have to say probably pretty subtle. I'm guessing angels are reasonably bright. You know, and you don't just walk up to them and say, you know what? I think God's wrong and I'm right. You know, I don't think you're going to get away with that. So there was... Probably something really, really subtle going on here. This evil was scattered in the most seducing manner. After it had sprung up and taken root in the minds of many, he, that would be Lucifer, gathered the ideas that he himself had first implanted in the minds of others and brought them before the highest order of angels as the thoughts of other minds against the government of God. Thus, by ingenious methods of his own devising, Lucifer introduced rebellion in heaven. I'm just reporting what they said. You, know, you kind of get the picture. I mean, you wonder. I mean, this, this, this didn't happen just overnight. This, this, this took a period of time. I, I don't know what scale of time we're talking. We talking weeks, or months, or years, or decades, centuries. I, I don't know what scale of time things play out on on eternity. That's, that's a little beyond my, my scope. But it's like Lucifer goes around and he just, little, 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 little subtle comment type of thing. And he just lets it sit there. And he completes his circuit of heaven. I mean, how long does that take? I have no idea. But, you know, so he comes back around, you know, a week later or a month later or a century later. I have no idea. But he comes back around and some poor angel who had no idea what he was doing just, oh, yeah, I remember the last time we talked. And these ideas come up in his mind, and unguardedly, he repeats some little aspect of some doubt that Lucifer planted in his mind. Be careful what you say. Because when you enunciate an idea, you're convincing your own mind that it's your idea, whether it really is or not. Don't parrot back garbage. Because it becomes your garbage, then. Be cautious about that. And then Lucifer would take that, and he'd spread that. And he'd spread that. Now, I'm, I'm loyal. Uh, I'm sure God has a handle on all this. I don't. You know. I'm sure it's not a problem. But you know, this is what they're saying down there. Let's go on. By sly insinuations, Lucifer sowed the seeds of doubt in the minds of many of the angels, and when he had won their support, he carried the matter to God, declaring that it was the sentiment of many of the heavenly beings that he, Lucifer, should have the preference to Christ. Okay. I want to be the greatest, right? A little pride thing going on here. Lucifer had presented the purposes of God in a false light, misconstruing and distorting them to excite dissent and dissatisfaction. He cunningly drew his hearers on to give utterance to their feelings. Then these expressions were repeated by him when it would serve his purposes, as evidence that the angels were not fully in harmony with the government of God. Why weren't they? Because of Lucifer. Note the process. Okay? And I want to put some labels on this for just my convenience, if nothing else. I was, I was reading this and, and trying to figure out, OK, so if that's what Lucifer was doing, is that what Kellogg was doing? And yeah, yeah, there's enough historical you know, evidence, uh, personal accounts and such things from the, the Kellogg era, that, that yeah, Kellogg was doing that sort of thing. And so I'm saying, is, is that really that important? Is that that big of a deal? So I'm going back, and I'm looking at Lucifer's, you know, the comments about Lucifer, and I'm trying to figure this out, and I'm just, you know, just kind of weighing the whole thing. I said, so, so what, would I, what would I characterize Lucifer's tactic as? And I came up with this expression, or these, these terms, and you can, you know, they're not perfect. I'm sure you could probably do better. But anyhow, I would say that he first corrupted and then co-opted the influence of the angels. He corrupted it by planting false ideas. But then he took their words. And this is their influence. But he took that for himself. And now he's wielding their influence. This is what they're saying. The great controversy began with the corruption of influence. And I, I just... You know, I'll just be honest with you. I'm not claiming any great divine inspiration on this, but as I was sitting there thinking about that, the great controversy began with the corruption of influence I just one of those kind of, you know, semi-intuitive type of uh, leaps of, of connection. I mean, like, like Einstein, right? E equals MC squared. Let's just take everything and multiply it times the speed of light squared and see if that works. I mean, what's the deal with that? Yeah, so, you know, uh, so in that kind of a intuitive sort of a thing, I said, you know what? The great controversy started with the corruption of influence, and the great controversy will end with the sanctification of influence. I said, "Well, that sounded kind of neat. I wonder what that would mean." <laughs> and so, literally, I said, "I said, oh, think about that. You know, is that is that is there anything to that? Right? I think there is." And so, we're going to spend a little while looking at the the broader question right now of influence. You've probably all heard a sermon now and then about influence, right? It, 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 uh, I remember sermons on influence when I was a kid. Kind of a browbeating type of thing. You, know, you guys are being bad, and you're exerting a bad influence, and you all need to sharpen up. You know, that, was, that was kind of the way I took those, those sermons. This is going to be a little different spin on influence, though. Influence is one of the... It's, it's, it's a power. You know, all power is in and of itself Neutral. You know, dynamite is a strong, powerful force, and it can be used for good or for evil, right? You can do wonderful, good things with D8 cats, and you can make a lot of, wreck a lot of havoc with a D8 cat if you, you know, just choose to. So power is a, is a neutral thing. It's how you use it. So here we go. Let's take a look at influence. To a large degree, Satan has succeeded in the execution of his plans... Through the medium of influence, taking advantage of the action of mind on mind, he prevailed on Adam to sin. Thus, at its very source, human nature was corrupted. And ever since then, sin has continued its hateful work, reaching from mind to mind. Every sin committed awakens the echoes of the original sin. Now, Notice this mind-to-mind, the influence of mind-on-mind. Mind. This is a university town. What do you think education's all about? Some <laughs> real, I mean, oh, sure. Oh, I got an education by reading my textbook. Really? Yeah. The education that sticks, the education that molds you is the influence of mind on mind. Just think of your teachers. You, know? you ever have a teacher that, I mean, he or she, him or herself, w- didn't make any influence on you? You got everything out of the, out of the book? Really? You know? I mean, there are some teachers that make very little influence, and frankly, I'd fire them. You know, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was a teacher and a principal for 20 years type of thing you know and I, I, don't, I don't have any interest in teachers that don't have influence. I mean excuse me, you know you should be making doilies somewhere or something. you know just <laughs> out of the classroom, that's not the wrong place for, for, a, for a person with no influence. Let's put it that way okay But it's this is mind on mind. okay, let's go on. Mutual dependence is a wonderful thing. Now wonderful doesn't always mean, Good, (laughs) okay. It's, It's more like amazing or something, okay. Reciprocal influence should be carefully studied. We should find out without doubt on what side we are exerting our influence. When placed on the side of right, influence is a power for God. When placed on the side of evil, it is a power for Satan. One human being under Satan's control becomes a means of temptation to another human being. Thus, evil grows into immense proportions. Be careful who your friends are. Be careful what you watch on TV. It's all having an effect. How striking is the power of influence, as here presented, and how necessary it is for each of us to know the character of our influence When that first sin could bring such a flood of woe upon our world, not an evil deed has been performed, but an unseen witness has marked it and followed its influence from one person to another, and a faithful record has been made of it. Won't it be fun to see the record keeping system God uses? You know, the only thing that I, I find really amusing or amazing or interesting about baseball is the stupidity of some of the, the, the statistics they keep, you know? It's like, this is the only time a left-handed shortstop has been on second base after the last guy hit a home run on a Wednesday since 1932. I mean, OK, good, you know? I mean, they keep these, these weird oddball records, you know? <sighs> I just, it's like, oh, cool. <laughs> Give me a break. Anyhow. <laughs> But what do you suppose God does? You know? Followed its influence from one person to another. What change in my life did Elijah make? You know? <laughs> Wouldn't it be fun to trace something like that? You know? How much good or bad influence has come to me because of Henry VIII? The 8th. I don't know. (laughs) Fascinating. It'd be fun to know. Going on. The influence of mind on mind, so strong a power for good when sanctified, is equally strong for evil in the hands of those opposed to God. This power Satan used in his work of instilling evil into the minds of the angels. Cast out of heaven, Satan set up his kingdom in this world, and ever since he has been untiringly striving to seduce human beings from their allegiance to God, he uses the same power that he used in heaven. The influence of mind on mind. Men become tempters of their fellow men. You know, I would say that that's, this this goes on all the time, continuously. Every time I commit an act that is contrary to God's law, I am at least silently exerting an influence that says, Dave thinks this is a good thing to do. How about you? Well, Dave thinks this is the way to make a living. Why don't you rob banks? He's doing it, you know? (laughs) It's really, it's a pernicious influence when you have laws that aren't actually enforced. Everybody just learns that you don't have to keep the law. Well, let's go on. The plan of God was that the highest influence in the universe emanating from the center of all power should be brought to bear on human minds. The goodness and love of God subdues the heart and and then man becomes a channel to communicate these divine impressions to his fellow man. Thus, in Christ, he is a fruit-bearing branch. No man, saint or sinner, lives to himself. Okay, but go back to the beginning of this. The highest influence in the universe emanating from the center of all power. What's that going to be? What's what's that, right? I, I think it's the life of Jesus. I think it's the example that he left us. The highest influence in the universe. I think influence is a bigger thing than we sometimes understand it to be. A minute ago, I talked about, you know, every time I commit an act, I, I'm exerting an influence. Well, I want to try and kind of define, go back to that idea, and, and define, at least loosely, what I mean when I say a bad influence. Because, you know, it, it's like, you know, we, we have certain categories of things. Oh, this guy's a bad influence, you know. Oh, this guy... He smokes and he drinks. He's a bad influence, you know? Or he does this and that, and he's a bad influence. Yeah, but a little broader than that, perhaps. So here's a a working definition, more or less. An evil influence is any statement or action that leads others to, I think I lost the word there, to feel or to think that it is appropriate to pursue their own interests to the neglect of others. I think an evil influence is anything that promotes the abstract concept of self-service. This is why the highest influence emanating from the center of all power was the self-sacrificing life of Christ. Well, there are lots of evil influences running loose in our world today. Just about anywhere you look, to be honest. but how do you counteract an evil influence? Uh, How do you do do that? So you've got evil influences running loose in the world. What do you do do about it? How do you you resolve that? And, you know, this may not be the perfect way of addressing it, but at least it kind of gets the idea across, or at least gets an idea across. I think of it almost as like Newtonian physics. You know, once you put a body in motion is going to keep going until there's a resisting force, right? And the only way to stop a body in motion is to exert an equal and opposite force. So how do you stop an evil influence? How do you know when you've stopped it? If the evil influence is anything that... Supports the concept of self-service, selfishness. How do you know when you've stopped it? And I would suggest that the only way to know that you've actually stopped an evil influence is when no one believes it anymore. That's That's a pretty high bar. When no one believes that selfishness Makes sense. That's when you've stopped an evil influence. Well, consider this text here. God also has highly exalted Christ and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, what's interesting to me out of that is we're talking every tongue, every knee. This is when the evil influence has been counteracted. The great controversy will never be won with a 51% vote or even a 99% vote. The great controversy apparently, somehow, Whether just by natural working out of events, the way things were or are, or something, the underlying reality of the issues, or by agreement perhaps between God and Satan themselves, I don't know, but somehow the great controversy is always presented as an all or nothing deal. Remember the book of Job? Satan goes to heaven, strutting around, you know, yeah, walking to and fro, it's my place. And God says, Have you considered my servant Job? One guy, just one guy. You know, and, and, and in our minds, Satan would have said, so what? One guy, who cares? But Satan didn't do that. He immediately says, yeah, I know, that's a problem. He says, but it's because of what you're doing. You know, and, and the presence of one man on the earth, one righteous man on the earth, was, a, was an issue for Satan. And the presence of a single person, a single angel a single unfallen being, a single fallen being, a single anything that believes that selfishness is, is, is a pretty cool idea, that'd be a problem for God, just like Job was a problem for Lucifer. It's not going to be done till every knee will bow, every tongue confess. There's another problem. See, one of the things that Satan has claimed is, is that God's lying about the whole deal. Has anybody ever studied debate? you remember, what, remember poisoning the well? Okay. You poison the well. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm running for mayor, and this guy over here is running for mayor, right? And so I get up in the debate, and the first thing I say is, ladies and gentlemen, I have to tell you something about my opponent. He's a, he, he's a terrible liar. You can't believe anything he says. So I say that for five minutes, and then he gets his turn, and he says, I am not a liar. And I say, see, he just lied. (laughs) Once you've questioned the honesty of an individual, what it boils down to is there is no possible way that that individual can proclaim himself honest and, and vindicate his tarnished honor. Proclamation will never do it. It's only demonstration. Once the well is poisoned, only demonstration can, can answer the question. God just can't say, Satan's wrong and I'm right. I mean, if he could say that, he should have said that a long, long time ago. Please. You know. Oh, I just never thought of that line. Really? No. You know, God's smarter than that. He can't say it, but God can do anything. No, he can't. We have to get over that at some point. <laughs> there are some things God can't do. And he can't proclaim himself innocent before the universe and have them all believe it. In the end, it all boils down to this. God has to show that he's right. He can't just say it. So how is he going to do that? Well, here's a verse I think addresses that. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. By the church, through the medium of the church. It's our job to be a part of that demonstration. Let's go on. How can human beings ever do anything that could teach the principalities and powers anything? Well, I'm going to scoot along here. Be not conformed to this world. Be transformed. There's a demonstration to be made. Therefore, the law is holy. The commandment, holy and just and good. We have to show that. The law of the Lord is perfect. The law of God is the foundation of his government. It is exactly what is needed to preserve life and righteousness. It's a fascinating statement. Exactly what is needed to preserve life and righteousness. Without the law of God, we would all die. and We'd all be unrighteous exactly what is needed. Satan was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is is a liar and the father of it. I'm just going to scoot along here. Notice this. The standard of the golden rule is the true standard of Christianity. Anything short of it is deception. There is no silver place, no 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 silver medal in this game. You have the golden rule, no silver, no bronze. The next thing down, I think, is wood hay and stubble. A religion that would lead us to be careless of human needs, sufferings, or rights is a spurious religion. In slighting the claims of the poor, the suffering, and the sinful, we are proving ourselves traitors to Christ. And here I'm getting down to the, the brass tacks. How will we ever exert an influence which can be used of God to counteract the evil influence in the world? And it starts getting very practical. The poor, the suffering, the sinful. What are we doing for them? If we're not following the golden rule, our religion is a deception. Our religion is actually, to some degree, supporting Satan's accusation that selfishness is a pretty cool concept. <clears throat> Search heaven and earth, and there is no truth revealed more powerful than that which is made manifest in works of mercy to those who need our sympathy and aid. You know, I'm, I'm interested in power. <laughs> because influence is a power. A- and, and I'm looking for an equal and opposite force. And there is no truth more powerful than that which is made manifest in works of mercy to those who need our sympathy and aid. This is the golden rule. This is the truth, as it is in Jesus. When those who profess the name of Christ shall practice the principles of the golden rule, the same power will attend the gospel, as in apostolic times. Yeah, I, I'm sure my own ego and pride get mixed up in this way too easily, because I'm, I'm actually quite a jerk. But... But I'm really tired of Adventism being ignored. You know? It's just like, hello? I'm really tired of our evangelistic efforts not attracting attention. I once was a part of a church. We worked for months, however long it was, planned an evangelistic series. First night came and not a single soul showed up. So we all came back the next night and the population stayed away in large numbers. Nobody showed. Just they totally ignored us. I don't like being ignored. Okay, so I've thrown out a whole mass of ideas. Now let me try and make some sense out of this. What are we really talking about? Where, where's this influence thing going, and how do we cultivate it, and how does, it, how does God harness it, right? Believe it or not, this is where the insanity thing comes in. <clears throat> I'm going to start trying to put the picture together here by a look at the ministry of Christ. Because this was the highest influence in the universe, from the center of all power. And he came and he lived and he died, and, and we'll, we focus on his, his three and a half years of ministry... And if I had to try and categorize what he did, I, I guess I'd probably say that he continually, continuously demonstrated self-sacrificing love. He just always put the other person first. Sometimes in ways that they weren't anticipating. You know, sometimes, you know, I mean, it was just as loving to say, get thee behind me, Satan, to Peter, as it was to say, you know, flesh and blood has not revealed this too. They were both loving. But he always practiced self-sacrificing love for three and a half years. For three and a half years, he taught his disciples. Greatest teacher the world's ever known. Three and a half years. And now we come down to the end of that time, and it's a Thursday afternoon. And the disciples and Christ have sat down in the upper room to what we know as the Last Supper. And what were they thinking about? Luke tells us, Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest three and a half years of demonstrating self-sacrificing selfless love and Thursday afternoon the disciples are still squarely on the side of the enemy who's to be the great that was what got Lucifer in trouble in heaven this is not some obscure little issue this is the very heart and core of the great controversy and the disciples were on the wrong side By any rational measure, we would say that Christ was a failure as a teacher. Three and a half years, and they haven't even figured this out yet. But not only was he a failure; it turns out he was utterly insane. Sort of. You know, there's a saying that kind of business world type of a saying, and you've probably heard it. I. I don't think I heard it, you know, maybe about five years ago it first came up, first time I heard it. Generally, I kind of like it. I'm going to take exception with it today, but generally I, I like it. Generally, I think it, it's, it's fairly accurate. The saying is, the definition of insanity, do you know it? Doing the same thing again, expecting different results. The definition of insanity. So here it is, Thursday afternoon, after three and a half years of demonstrating self-sacrificing love, the disciples are squarely enlisted in the army of Lucifer. And Jesus says, I'm going to try it one more time. I'm going to do it one more day. Maybe this time it'll get through. That's insane. Or if it's not insane, it's the gutsiest example of brinkmanship, diplomacy, and confidence in the, in the principles of God that is ever going to be demonstrated. Everything was on the line here with these guys. And he says, I'm, I know that God's principles work. I don't care what happens. I don't care how it happens. I know that God's principles work. There is no silver rule. And what Jesus did in the next 24 hours, plus or minus, whatever, categorically, he did exactly the same thing he'd always done. He, he manifested self-sacrificing love. Quantitatively, he blew it off the charts. And what he did in the next 24 hours will for all eternity be the definition of self-sacrificing love. And he did that because that was the highest influence in the universe, emanating from the center of all power. It's the only thing he could do. It's the only possible way he had to make this thing work. We know the story. Gethsemane the betrayal, Peter's denial, the scourgings, the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This example of selfishness, selflessness, is the ultimate gift that Christ could give to the universe. Because it's an influence of power. It's the only possible thing that could have counteracted Lucifer's charges. It's the demonstration from the Godhead itself that what Lucifer said was not true. There is yet a demonstration to be made by human beings. But it... That could never be done without the demonstration from the Godhead itself, first of all. The Lord Jesus has bound up his interests with the interests of the whole world. His influence is an ever-widening, shoreless influence. Although unseen, it is intensely active, wielded by the Father himself. It is the element which is used in restoring the moral image of God in man. And I thought it was my Bible studies that did that. No, it's not my Bible studies. (laughs) It's the influence of Jesus. If my Bible study is worthy of the name, it it somehow portrays that influence. It's the most you and I can do. Having received that influence ourselves, it's our responsibility to pass it on. This is our work. And it's a work which must go to the entire world, and the world is ignoring us. We don't have that much influence. Every now and then we do. Yeah, you know, different things come up now and then. No, they'll pat us on the back for, you know, this, that, or the other thing. But they're not listening. How are we going to have that influence when we tell the world they need to fear God for the hour of his judgment has come, they yawn. When we tell them about the mark of the beast and hellfire and brimstone, albeit temporary, it's not nearly as scary as the stuff that comes out of Hollywood. What are we supposed to do? This all ties together, in my mind, at least. So many topics tie together. Isaiah 58 is the work God requires his people to do. Now, everyone knows Isaiah 58. I think we'll quote it here in a little bit, so you'll, you'll see it. But this is the medical missionary chapter. This is do good to other people chapter, right? Right? With the work of advocating the commandments of God and repairing the breach that has been made in the law of God, we are to mingle compassion for suffering humanity. We are to show supreme love to God. We are to exalt His memorial, the Sabbath, which has been trodden down by unholy feet. And with this, we are to manifest mercy, benevolence, and the tenderest pity for the fallen race. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. As a people, we must take hold of this work. Love revealed for suffering humanity gives significance and power to the truth. I think I have largely been missing that in my own experience, and my own endeavors. But like I say, you know, maybe I'm some sort of a megalomaniac or something, but, but power interests me in behalf of the gospel significance and power to the truth. Love manifested for suffering humanity. God has given us a recipe for attaining influence. It doesn't look that complicated on paper. Uh, It can get really messy trying to put it into life, though. I'm trying to learn. I'm working on it. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have one love one for another. How is it that the world's going to ever pay attention to us? I mean, you know, really, we have this rather grandiose conception that one day the Seventh day Adventist Church will stand up and say, This is. Is the test, and all the world will stand before the bar of God on the truth which we prof- profess. Really, yeah, really. But what influence is going to get us there? <clears throat> Nothing. Will help us more at this stage of our work than to understand and to fulfill the mission of the greatest medical missionary that ever trod the earth. Nothing will help us more than to realize how sacred is this kind of work and how perfectly it corresponds with the life, life work of the great missionary. The object of our mission is the same as the object of Christ's mission. Why did God send his son to the fallen world? To make known and to demonstrate to mankind his love for them. This is this is how it's done. God's purpose in committing to men and women, the mission that he committed to Christ, is to disentangle his followers from all worldly policy and to give them a work identical with the work that Christ did. I'm still pondering that statement. Identical? Really? Identical? What what does that mean in, in this context? Now, I don't think God calls me to walk on water or necessarily to feed 5,000 or any of those sort of things. And yet, in in some way, God has given us a work that is identical with the work of Christ. And and I would say it's the manifestation of self-sacrificing love. In whatever sphere, into whatever growth level, capacity, whatever set of talents, different people have different talents. You know, I might be able to change an oil filter, somebody else might be able to change out a kidney. It's good. You know, we probably ought not to switch jobs. (laughs) Uh, But it's not the job. It's the manner in which it's done. Is it done out of self sacrificing love? That's what that's what carries the influence. You know, how am I ever supposed to do this? A work identical. You know, Jesus was the son of God. I am not the capital S son of God. You know, I can't do what he did so often, it seems. You know, and, and yeah, that can be used as a cop-out, and I'm not trying to propound a, a cop-out theology here. There is, nevertheless, some truth in it that, that I, I'm, I'm not going to ever measure up fully to everything that Jesus did so how can we do this and so I went looking I, I went looking what did what did people do, real people and I have two quick examples I want to go through, I see I have to be very quick here now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer the ninth hour and a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried when they, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple which is called beautiful to ask alms from those who in, entered the temple, excuse me But what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping, stood up and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. Okay, it's a familiar story, and you probably even know the song that goes with it. Um, I just want to point out a couple of things, though. Peter and John did not have any money. Silver and gold, have I none? Which is really easy to understand because they were both fishermen. The last time they'd been fishing was at least 40 days before and they left that catch on the beach. So, you know, it's probably true. They were broke. But despite the fact that they were broke, they were headed to the temple. They weren't going to the boat. They were going into the temple. You know, and there's something to be said. There's a very strong influence for someone who is not flush in this world's goods, who is still able and willing to minister. I think there's a very strong influence in that, and I think God's people will have to do a lot of that at the end of time. I think much as Christ's life, I mean, he went for three and a half years and really didn't gain the, gain the victory with these guys, and then right at the end, whoosh, you know, was this, this big swoop on the chart type of thing, okay? I, I think it's probably going to be that way with, with God's people, too. I think we're going to go, and right at the end... God's people are going to get it together and understand what this whole thing means. And you're going to see us an example of self-sacrificing love that would leave us totally stunned, speechless today. We've got much to learn. I've got much to learn. Their financial condition did not prevent them from helping. That's important. is an interesting sidelight. we believed the warning that Christ was soon to come is now white writing we felt such an earnest longing for those in sin that we were willing to make almost any sacrifice we have known what poverty is and it was the best experience of our lives really kind of fascinating why was it the best experience I would say probably because the highest and most precious of all human experiences is the constant dependence of the soul on, on God and when you're flat broke you got a lot of things to depend on God for it's pretty cool how that works there is a special influence from those people who, being totally destitute of anything themselves, are still able to give. That's incredible. as we bring ourselves into right relationship with God and we, sh- we shall have success wherever we go and it is success that we want not money living success and God will give it to us because he knows all about our self-denial he knows every sacrifice that we make you may think your self-denial does not make any difference that you ought to have more consideration and so on but it makes a great difference with the Lord well, I'm going to skip ahead my other example is Nicodemus Nicodemus was fabulously wealthy According to Jewish legend, more or less, the, com- the wealth of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea would have been sufficient to support the city of Jerusalem for 20 years. They were well off. Nicodemus employed his wealth in sustaining the infant church that the Jews had expected to be blotted out at the death of Christ. What do you think paid for Thomas to get down to India? I mean, you know, you've got to pay airfare somehow, right? <laughs> you know, there, was, there was a lot of money that was needed to keep this operation going and I think most of it came from Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea right? in the time of peril he who had been so cautious and questioning was firm as a rock encouraging the faith of the disciples furnishing means to carry forward the work of the gospel he was scorned and persecuted by those who had paid him reverence in other days he became poor in this world's goods yet he faltered not in the faith which had its beginning in that night conference with Jesus there's something to be said from that influence too in no way could the lord be better glorified this is we're this is a, in a, a superlative in no way could the lord be better glorified and the truth more highly honored than for unbelievers to see that the truth has wrought a great and good work upon the lives of naturally covetous and penurious men. If it could be seen that the faith of such had an influence to mould their characters, to change them from close, selfish, overreaching, money-loving men to men who love to do good, who seek opportunities use their means to bless those who need to be blessed, who visit the widow and fatherless in their affliction, and who keep themselves unspotted the from the world, it would be an evidence that their religion was genuine such would let their light so shine that others seeing their good works would be led to glorify their father which is in heaven the fruit would be unto holiness and they would be living representatives of Christ upon the earth sinners would be convicted that there is in the truth a power to which they are strangers so there's a there's something for everybody here (laughs) whether you're flat broke or fabulously wealthy you have the influence and in both cases, it comes down to not trusting in what you have or don't have. It comes down to trusting in God and actually helping out of the guy. The joy of our Lord consisted in enduring toil and shame for others that they might be benefited thereby. We are capable of being happy in following his example and in living to bless our fellow men. And you know, if Jesus was insane, what could be better than for me to be insanely happy and follow him? And it says I'm capable of being happy doing that. And that's what's going to turn the tide in the great controversy. It's a simple thought. Weigh it out. Father, we just ask that you will be with us in the simple things. That whatever our skills or talents or station in life, whatever it is, you will teach us how we may have the true gold of the golden rule. That our religion may not be a deception. That our service may not be an influence on the wrong side. In Jesus' name we pray.